Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Dan McCrum. The investigative journalist gives us the lowdown on a financial scandal that shook Europe. The rise and fall of Wirecard. When Financial Times journalist Dan McCrum followed a tip to investigate a hot new European tech startup challenging Silicon Valley, he encountered a tale that was stranger, more complex and dangerous than he'd ever imagined. His new book, Money Men, A Hot Startup, A Billion Dollar Fraud, A Fight for the Truth, tells the story. He recently joined Carl Miller, Research Director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos to talk about it. Here's Carl with more. Dan, a very warm welcome to you. Cole, oh, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's begin. So, Dan, take us into that first moment when you, you, you hear the word Wirecard for the first time. Okay, so we have to go all the way back to the summer of 2014. And I'm writing for the Financial Times blog, FT Alphaville, and I'm looking for companies which are up to no good. I'm chatting to a hedge fund manager and he says to me, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? So I say, yeah, of course. And he mentions this funny little German company to me called Wirecard. And, you know, it's worth about 4 billion euros. It does something to do with payments. It calls itself the European PayPal. And it turns out there are two theories about what's going on. Because it's growing so fast and it's so incredibly profitable that it seems like maybe it's too good to be true. And so what happens is that it turns out there are two theories about this company. One is... There's a bit of accounting fraud going on here. Maybe it's juicing its profit somehow. But the other is that, hmm, if it's involved in moving money around, maybe it's laundering money for every nasty bit of business that you might imagine online. And that's where I start. I just kind of try and look at it and go, well, what is this company? So you, you hear this, those competing theories begin to begin to bounce around in your mind. And, and then the kind of story kind of Kind of moves on, doesn't it? You kind of, you, you kind of like you, you, some evidence emerges, but it's 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 a very very long burn. This story, I think, in journalism speak, isn't it? Yeah, and so to jump ahead to just give you a sense of where we're going, everything that happens with this company is a little bit off kilter. It doesn't act like a normal company, and as I start to dig, there's this sort of you know we're talking about years that this happens. There's this slow, steady escalation 
where the way they respond just gets more aggressive and more strange. So you start out with lawyers, you know, aggressive legal letters. And then we start to realize there are hackers trying to break into our email. And then the company's trying to use nightclub owners to sort of intercede on its behalf instead of, you know, professional PR firms, which is, you know, just strange. And then private detectives start following people around. And then it sort of concocts this whole conspiracy in which it's not the criminal. Me and my colleagues at the Financial Times are the corrupt ones who are just trying to manipulate the share price. And so it sort of, you know, it becomes this sort of cat and mouse battle between the two of us. But to begin with, I've got no idea where this is going. I just start sort of trying to look at what's happening. And um, and I really, the approach is quite simple. You know, you can talk, I can talk, you know, in ridiculous detail. I mean, my editor always said I, I basically did a PhD in work hard. But the fundamental thing that I was looking at is there's this phrase that some hedge fund investors use, which is there's never just one cockroach in the kitchen. And so what I set out to do really was to prove that Wirecard was lying about something, anything really. And it had bought you know, a whole series of little businesses across Asia. And what I set about doing was going, well, here's what the company says. Now let's go and have a look at what's happening on the ground and in whatever paperwork I can find locally and see if that matches up to what they're saying. And the simple answer is it didn't. So you start each chapter down with the kind of wire card share price, which of course is extremely important to this whole story. And for most of the time, it's kind of ticking steadily upwards. Um, tell us a bit more actually about Wirecard, the company, because it's, it's a strange entity, isn't it? Kind of part bank, part payment processing company, German unicorn, like one of the few genuinely huge European technology companies, I suppose. What does Wirecard actually, what did it purport to do? So what it claimed to do was quite a simple thing. If you had, say, an online business and you wanted to sell flip-flops to people, when they come to pay, Wirecard was the company would get the money from their debit card or their credit card into your bank, bank account. And that's quite a, you know, it sounds complicated, but fundamentally, lots of other people do it. Lots of banks do it. But Wirecard was doing it, you know, fast, you know, it was growing faster and was making more money than anyone else doing it. And they did what a lot of companies do nowadays, which is they basically take an ordinary business and say they're using some sort of magic technology and dress it up into something extraordinary. And so like the main guy who ran it is this character called Marcus Brown. And he's sort of an Austrian former management consultant, very cold, austere, you know, not a guy for small talk. But he then goes on stage in a black turtleneck like he's Steve Jobs. And he starts making all these pronouncements about, you know, they're using artificial intelligence, the finest technology you can possibly find. No one can compete. And he starts sort of with all these huge blue sky projections. We're all going to stop using notes and coins. The future is the cashless economy. And Wirecard's going to be right at the forefront of it. And people really started to lap that up. And, you know, one of the reasons why is Europe doesn't have many big technology companies. You know, we're being left behind, people worry, by Silicon Valley, all the big tech companies in Asia. So suddenly, when a European fintech that is going to challenge these greats comes along, people got very, very excited about it. 
So you, you you initially look at the accounts, you get drawn in, the, 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 the company behaves in a kind of strangely aggressive and increasingly escalating way. But w were there big moments during this investigation where the kind of penny drops, where you suddenly realise or you suddenly come across kind of whole bundle of evidence or new information or a new voice or a new source and you're like, oh my God, this is so <laughs> much bigger than I initially thought it was going to be. So... So there's two moments which are like totally key. And one of these is when my boss, Paul Murphy, he's like a very old school newspaper editor. Right? Like he's a great character in himself. And he's having lunch with one of his bandit sources, as he calls them. You know, sort of rich people who like to trade the stock market a lot. There's an awful lot of lunches, isn't there, in yeah. the work of a financial Well, journalist. lunching is very important as a journalist. You, I can't understate that enough. And and. He's having lunch with one of these guys, and they sort of say to him, hey, yeah, Wirecard, you do know there's good money on the table. I think they'll pay you to make the stories go away. $10 million has been mentioned. And he tells them to go and see another one of these bandits, a nightclub owner, and they have a chat. And it's like, yeah, the main bad guy. He's actually on the wall behind me, Jan Marsalek. That's his uh, wanted poster. We'll probably come to him. Is um, He's desperate to meet you. And yeah, maybe there is $10 million if you can make the stories go away. And we're at, at the Financial Times, we're like, what on earth are you talking about? Like The idea that that sort of money is being bandied around as a bribe is totally incredible. And it raises a very interesting question. Like, who can't you buy for $10 million? But we, we had to approach it as if it was a trap. And so we set up this whole sting with, you know, a camera and a handbag. Uh, several of my colleagues sort of went undercover. And we met the main bad guy. And this is the one time, I mean, one, one of the sort of interesting things about the story is like, I've never met him, never even spoken to him. Only some of my colleagues have. And it turned out he is, as everyone says, this incredibly charming, charismatic sort of young whisket. And he's too clever to ha offer a bribe directly. It's only ever done through intermediaries. And so we never, we never really come up with anything. We're left with sort of this like, well, we've got no story to write. But at the same time, completely convinced that this is a criminal company. So that was the, that's the first kind of time the penny drops then when, when, when you, you, I mean, presumably you just don't encounter in your normal day-to-day -day dealings in the city with companies who via intermediaries put 10 million pounds on the table to make a story go away. Yeah, this is I not mean, the sort of stuff which happens in real life. No. <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, there are many moments like that where you're, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of every twist you're like, what is happening? No, this can't be real. And, um, so yeah, it was moments like that which sort of convince us. And um, but then the moment, you know, one of the wonderful things about being a journalist is every so often out of a clear blue sky, someone gets in touch and says, Hey, I've got some information you might be interested in. And this is the moment when the whistleblower emerges. Or I say the moment the whistleblower, it's actually the whistleblower's mother. She's one of the really the great heroes in the book, isn't she? I mean, incredible Evelyn. character. Yeah, Evelyn. She's sort of born to seek immigrants in Singapore and is forced into this arranged marriage, kicks out her alcoholic husband and raises her only son herself. And she becomes a banker 
and is like having to take him to meetings with her because she's got no one else to look after him. But so she she raises him to do the right thing. And she also understands how finance works. So when he goes to work for Wirecard in Singapore and discovers a whole bunch of little frauds going on, and he does the right thing, launches an investigation, finds the evidence, tries to tell management back in Germany that uh, there's 2 million euros about to go out the door here, some weird scheme. We need to stop it and launch a big investigation. But what happens is he's the one who gets forced out. And she's not going to stand for it. She is not going to let Wirecard get away with doing that to her son. So while he's busy looking for another job, she starts contacting journalists. And because I'd written the earlier stories about Wirecard, she gets in touch with me. And uh, when her son, he, he's called Pav, um, his, his identity is quite well known now. It's okay to talk uh, to identify him. When he finds out, he's like, oh my God, mum, what have you done? <laughs> but he agrees to talk to me and I fly to Singapore and he hands over the mother load, this huge cache of internal documents, which is what is key to sort of finally seeing the inside of Wirecard. And so, and so we arrive at the crux. And I know this is going to be difficult and complicated and it's, it's, it's lots of shell companies and hidden ownership, but... But we have arrived at a moment, Dan, where you're going you're gonna to have to try and explain the kind of interlocking series of frauds and, and, and things that are actually happening inside of Wirecard. So, so, you know, it's this huge company, a bank, payments processing, German unicorn. What did you find really, like, in essence, find out was actually happening inside when you, when you got this big treasure trove? So you say it's really complicated, but what it boiled down to was something so stupid, it was unbelievable. And so simple, because what they did is they basically had three friends, three business partners. And um, what they did is they said, okay, the payments which are a little bit too hot to handle for us, you know, the things which are going into those nastier areas of the internet, we won't do those ourselves. What we'll do is we'll give them to one of our friends. They'll process the payments for it. They'll get paid a lot of money. And then they'll send us a nice big fat commission. So kind of at arm's length. And that was at least the internal story. And, you know, this is partly maybe where some of this idea that there's a lot of money laundering going on is happening. But really, the friends weren't doing anything at all. It was all make-believe. It was just this big fake where the friends would sit there and go, oh, yeah, no, we've done really well this uh, quarter, this year. And we'd send them a bunch of numbers which said how much fabulous amounts of money they've got. And Wirecard would write it down and give it to their orders and say, look, we've made fabulous amounts of money. Our friends are doing all the business for us. And when it boiled down to it, there was nothing there. But whilst that was very simple, proving that... And actually discovering it was a bit of a process. And so you have these moments where, you know, I didn't start from that. What I, what I had was this bunch of documents and, you know, and, you know, we had to be super secure. I was working on sort of an air-gapped laptop in a little bunker inside the FT and sort of going through people's emails, following trails through conversations, trying to piece together this puzzle, what's really happening. 
And then I had this uh, amazing colleague, Stefania Palmer, who is sort of running around in Asia trying to like knock on doors and I'm feeding her information. So we send her to Manila to go and find one of these partners that we've heard so much about. And we're not really sure what we're going to find. Is it going to be gangsters? Are they nasty people who are there? You know, it's some pretty shady business. She goes to the address and she knocks on the door and it opens up. And the first thing she sees are two men with a white poodle on top of a table and they're giving it a haircut. <laughs> and there's this sort of bemused family there who are like, what are you talking about? We've never heard anything about international payment processing. And it's as we start to do that and we get pictures and we're like, okay, we're beginning to get the idea here. Uh, there is no real business going on whatsoever. How can they hide and camouflage a, a, a fraud, which, as you said, when you boil down to it, really is so stupid, but on the other hand, so astronomical and so and so grandiose in terms of its its design? I mean, you know, I mean, it, there's a whole kind of there's lots of different things happening in terms of of the of the cover up, isn't there? You know, partly the kind of strange obfuscatory language of the CEO, you know, kind of befuddling investors, partly partly kind of, um, I suppose, cooking the books and strange accounting mechanisms. Like, how, why were they so effective? How, how could the city and, and lots of people that could stand to make a lot of money from seeing through a fraud like this not see through it for so long? Well, a lot of people just trusted Marcus Brown. They kind of bought the bullshit, really. They were like, OK, yeah, I like what he's saying. But there's, there's this sort of subtle thing about complex frauds, which... It's not really, you know, me trying to sell you a bridge that doesn't belong to me. It's this sort of distributed abuse of institutional psychology. So everybody looks around the room and says, okay, there's a lot of very reputable bankers, accounting firms, lawyers. The regulators definitely look take a look at this, surely. And they assure themselves that someone has checked. Because why would they all be sitting there if nobody had checked? And why can't abuse that? They sort of would constantly point to these people and say, look, surely these people wouldn't be involved if we were a fraud. But what it did as well is it was incredibly effective. And this is where sort of the battle comes in, is they turned me into the enemy very publicly. So as a journalist, you're not supposed to become the story. But what they did is they accused the Financial Times and me personally of leaking our stories to speculators before we wrote them. Basically said, the Financial Times is corrupt. And one of the crazy things about the whole story is that large parts of the German establishment kind of went along with that. And so they announce a criminal investigation into me and my colleague Stefania. And... and um, and yeah, at that point, it really felt, you know, the world's gone mad here. Hi, everyone. It's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. 
iq.supercast.com. That's iq, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. It's just so astonishing. I mean, who... Ultimately, who do you blame the most for failing to expose, well, failing to see that the fraud is happening and then failing to react when your stories come out? Because you've got, there's, there's a whole, I mean, in many ways, this is not just the story of fraud, is it? But the story of like kind of systemic failure of the city, of auditors, um, of the complicity of, 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 of PR firms and, 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 and law firms and kind of silencing journalism. Like stepping away from all this now, who, who do you really kind of point the finger at you know the accounting firm which signed off wirecard's books for a decade has you know a lot of responsibility here they, they were the ones who would you know should really have picked up the fact that the numbers didn't make any sense and then you have sort of the banks as well they extended big loans even once you know it had become clear in the financial times was publishing some quite serious stories and you know the german regulators I mean, I generally come back to sort of the incompetence theory of humanity. There was a kind of a failure of imagination here. They looked at this very successful company with these charismatic, well-dressed executives, and they just could not imagine that they were the criminals. And for some reason, I don't know, maybe there's a flavor of, you know, Anglo-Saxon conspiracy or suspicion, you know, it was easier to imagine that journalists in London were running around with speculators than this very large and successful German company was corrupt. But I mean, they also, you know, one of the things that I try and show in the book is just how extraordinary the countermeasures were which Wirecard was using. Because, um, I mean, you mentioned some of the enablers there. So obviously they use some very high-priced lawyers. But you also had this extraordinary use of private detectives. So there's this moment where we discover that 30 private detectives are running around London trying to take pictures of our sources, looking for people colluding. And that's quite intimidating. You know, journalists, I mean, I think one of the things which will surprise people perhaps is sort of the conditions which journalists are operating in in these kinds of stories and, you know, what we're up against as we're trying to do it. And, um, and, you know, we flip one of them because we find out about this operation. And he mentions um, that, oh, yeah, there was, there was one tactic which he thought about, but it was decided that it wasn't 
yet necessary, which was the old gangland trick to um, plant drugs in my car and call the police. And, you know, when you hear that, you're like, that could blow up our life. Can you imagine the knock on the door? You know, I mean, and there's a lot of my life now. I mean, uh, Charlotte, uh, my wife, who was amazing and was incredibly supportive for all this, you know, we're talking about it. And she's like, you know how this ends, that the guys with the most money always win. And that was kind of that was kind of the, you know, the motivating thing, but also the terrifying thing at the same time, you know. Seems like there's a real chance these guys are going to get away with it. But also they were very clever at using people who were operating, you know, within the limits of the law and using it against us. So they claimed that we were corrupt. And so they were looking for evidence of criminal activity. So that's how they justified this whole sprawling investigation. You know, they were trying to catch us up to no good, you know, using the public interest, which we as journalists use against us. I think one of the fascinating things about the whole story, and certainly that I found really interesting trying to write it, was trying to get inside the head of this guy behind me, Jan Marsalek. Because he's amazing, he's charismatic, but the more I learned, the more the sense I got that he didn't really know what he was doing. He's like the consummate improviser. And so Wirecard sort of, you know, it charts its history. So Wirecard starts out doing, you know, basically laundering money for things like online gambling in places where they shouldn't be processing payments for it. But for various reasons, that business starts to go away. And suddenly this Marslet character gets promoted beyond his ability. And he's scrambling around trying to, you know, solve the problem, keep the company going, find the next big thing. And it's in doing that that he almost destroys it. He's, you know, his madcap schemes basically blow up the whole company. And it's kind of at that moment that the course is set because they, they can't make as much money as they used to from money laundering. So the new thing is accounting fraud. And it's kind of, you know, when you see sort of that arc and you see all the tricks you do, you begin to realize that, you know, the company was corrupt from a very long time and kind of, I mean, top to bottom is the wrong word because 6,000 people worked for it. But, you know, everything, they were using every lever available to them to try and survive. I mean, this must, this must have been at its peak anyway, like absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I mean, I know, I, I know journalists, you know, I mean, it kind of, we pretend to be kind of hard-bitten, kind of, you know, veterans, you know, yeah. nothing scares journalists, you know, they need full investigation. But, but you're a normal person, Dan, all journalists are, with a kind of home and a family and, 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 and well-being and a livelihood. Um, how, how was this kind of, this must have rippled into your life and, and, it, and, 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 and kind of been a drain on, you know, your psychology and sense of safety and everything? Yeah, the, uh, I mean... It's sort of I, I chuckle because it's sort of it's easier to laugh at how farcical it became rather than to sort of yeah. engage with that sort of like if if you get too close to it the heart starts going and all the adrenaline starts. Uh, you see shadows again. in every bush and you don't know who's going to be waiting at the end of your road and yeah and there you know there were moments when I was checking the bushes outside for cameras you know subtly I didn't want anyone to realise I was doing that because I'd look a bit mad wouldn't I you know. I'll just start lining my hat with tinfoil as well. But yeah, it was this real escalation. And I think one of the people should, one of the things people should realize as well is, um, so all of that was this sort of threat inside your head because there's no sort of physical, we're going to get you kind of threat. It's just, you know, the possibility. 
who are these guys we're dealing with? They seem pretty nasty. What lengths might they go to? But one of the one of the actual worst moments was the legal threats. Because we, we sort of go away from go away for holiday in the summer and have a lovely time and sort of finally relax about everything, no longer thinking about Wirecard. And we come home and I find in the post box, delivered by hand, this huge, thick pile of papers. And I open it up and it's something that I'd completely forgotten about. Wirecard was suing us, suing the Financial Times and suing me personally in Germany. And even though, you know, the suit turns out to be spurious, but in that moment of like looking at court documents with your name on and that kind of sense of yikes, what am I on the hook for here? And this is this is basically a bank we're going up against. They've got unlimited resources. How expensive is that going to get? That very tangible threat to your family, your livelihood, not to mention the fact that it says by hand on it. You know, I'm actually looking around going, well, who who just dropped this here? They clearly know where I live. That, I think, was one of the most, you know, it's sort of a legitimate thing, but that was one of the most intimidating moments. And, you know, and, you know lots of journalists recently have been through this and I can't understate the amount of pressure that just that sort of threat of legal action and when you've actually got a legal action puts onto you really is quite oppressive and and you know I, I it, it seems that just simply the existence of the legal action itself regardless of the merits or the the likelihood of the outcome is is, is itself a chilling effect against a journalist or any kind of normal individual when they're trying to expose the kind of mendacities and, and, and corruptions of the powerful and rich. It, it worked very effectively for yeah. Wirecard. You know, they, they intimidated Reuters at one point. And, you know, they, at this sort of moment of the battle, they, they turned it into a fight between them and the Financial Times. So, so the pressure's growing on you. Your investigation's going deeper and deeper. You have all this evidence. You know, you're writing all these stories. How does, how does a story end? We we can. There's an Interpol red notice on the wall, so we know we know how it ends. But but how does it, how do we get there? So, the pressure starts to really build on Wirecard. The Financial Times publishes a story which says, "This is how they're committing fraud. This is where they're doing it. These are the customers who don't exist. And if you don't believe us, here are all the underlying documents, so you can see for yourself." And we're like, "That's the killer blow. This is going to destroy them." But then it takes eight months for the company to collapse. And what it turns out is Wirecard has told everyone, and this is the way it's hoodwinked its auditors for years, that its cash actually isn't controlled by the company. What it's done is it's got 2 billion euros in special bank accounts, which are overseen by a lawyer. And so the company's under a lot of pressure at this point. So a delegation of, you know, two sets of accountants from two different big accounting firms, plus a bunch of Wirecard lawyers, all fly to Manila to meet the lawyer. And they go up to his penthouse office. And the guy that this German financial institution has chosen to look after, 2 billion euros of its money, has a YouTube studio in its office. And he's got one of those little plaques it says he's got 100,000 subscribers. 
And on this YouTube channel, he's giving advice about things like divorce and adultery. And he walks into the room, you know, more than half an hour late, and proceeds to tell them how important he is and how influential he is and how he's great friends with the president of the Philippines. And then they all go downstairs and they get into a convoy of cars with police outriders to go to the banks, which aren't the headquarters of the banks. It's some tiny little branch on a side street. And they get handed these pieces of paper, which say, yes, this big German company has a billion euros in our bank. Nothing to worry about. I mean, and, like, I mean, that chapter is just like one of my absolute favorite to write because it's so farcical. By this point, the whole thing has got the quality of farce. But also, I think the auditors have been like trying to work out what was going on for so long. They were kind of relieved that there was something. It didn't really make any sense, but there was a guy and he had the bank accounts and whatever. But then uh, they're still not sure. So they ask Wirecard to actually send some money to Germany to prove that it's theirs. They say, uh, yeah, can you send 400 million euros, please? And so Marcus Brown, I don't know if he was wearing a black turtleneck when he's having these conversations. It's like, yeah, the money will definitely arrive. It's definitely on its way. But of course, it doesn't arrive. And um, EY finally goes, okay, we're going to have to contact the chief executive of the bank directly. So they call him up, explain what's going on, and a letter comes back and it says, these bank accounts are spurious. So the first thing that happens is everyone in Germany has to Google the obscure English word spurious. <laughs> and then the second thing that happens is all hell breaks loose. And, uh, you know, within a short period of time, the whole company just comes completely crashing down. And, and this cast of characters that, that's been with us on this story, we've got Marcus Brown, Jan Marsalek on one side, and obviously Gil and Evelyn on the other. Yeah. Where, where, are they, where are they now? Where, where, did, where do we find them today? So Marcus Brown is in jail awaiting trial. That's due to start in September. Again, one of the surprising things is that uh, this guy behind me was allowed to leave the country. The day after the collapse, when you know, everyone's going, ah, oh, the 2 billion euros isn't there. No one seems to think to arrest him, so he, he drives to Vienna, gets on a private plane to Belarus, hasn't been seen again. And uh, he's widely thought to be in a suburb of Moscow at the moment. Evelyn is doing very well. She is still in Singapore, and her son, uh, Pav, is now working for a startup in Bangkok. I mean, he talks about the, you know, the pressure. He deserves an enormous amount of credit for doing the right thing and it still lives with him you know he still has those moments of you know I've spoken to him he says you know the door to his apartment used to rattle when the lift went past and every time it rattled in the night he would just sort of wake up in a cold sweat so he had to get a big special lock put on the door so it wouldn't rattle so it's you know it, it wasn't without cost Tr truly heroic levels of bravery I think from all of you that were exposing this in the in the face of in the face of all of that is there more to come out for Wirecard I'm, I mean I'm still very interested in yes probing some of the elements of well what was Jan Marsalek up to you know we've looked at the fraud side but what was the money laundering side so you know I think I've I think I've charted the how and the why that Wirecard happened but there's still a few intriguing questions left the actual presence of Germany, all of this, I, was actually, for me, one of the most uh, surprising things about the story. Because Germany, 
you know, you just think of as a kind of sober, kind of adult, kind of well-regulated, kind of very sombre place, I think, in terms of financial markets. It, 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 well, was it surprising to you that this fraud emerged from Germany as opposed to perhaps some of the frothier places around the world where this kind of thing, you know, you, you kind of expect to happen kind of uh, uh, more unchecked? Okay, so two things on that. One is that Germany isn't actually, you know, quite perhaps as grown up on this as we might think, because, you know, there's a number of big scandals, the VW emissions scandal, the huge uh, Cumex fraud, which um, has been going on there. So, you know, the country is not without scandal, but neither are others. But again, at the same time, one of the great ironies of these frauds is you need a country where people trust each other for them to take place. Because we operate in a high trust society where most people aren't trying to just rip us off or lie to our faces. And that's really efficient. And we get a lot of benefits from that because you don't have to go into every interaction having to check everything. Most of the time, most things are fine. And it's those assumptions that everything is generally fine is what fraudsters like Wirecard are able to exploit. So it's sort of because we have a very successful trusting economy that they work. Well, there we go. We're on the hour. I mean, it's an astonishing, uh, amazing story. It's intrepid, uh, tenacious reporting. Dan, thank you very much um, for, for, for everything you've done to expose this, of course, as well as uh, for your time this evening. It's a brilliant book, Money Men. I heartily, heartily commend everyone who's been listening to this. If you haven't already, you'd be mad not to go out and get the book now. Thanks for coming to this Intelligence Square Plus event. I've found it truly a, a, an unbelievable piece of, of journalism. Dan, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.